0: I feel that part of the work that I've been doing lately is trying very hard to make explicit and clear the methodological, the paradigmatic, and the theoretical roots that a lot of work in our field stands on.
1: So welcome to the Harvard-Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazil, and today we're going to be talking about Health Professions Educational Scholarship and in particular about the connection between that scholarship and our practice. And I'm going to have a conversation with two very distinguished Health Professions Educational Scholars, Lara Vapio and Shubha Ramani, uh, who are going to talk about this connection, talk about their work and think about how it might help us as either practitioners or as scholars ourselves. So I'm going to introduce our guests first. Uh, First, Lara Vapio. She's the Professor, Centre for Health Professions Education and Department of Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Services in Bethesda, Maryland. How are you, Lara?
0: I'm well, thanks, Victoria. Thanks for having me today.
1: I know, and I'm so pleased you could be here because this whole episode was sparked by a little Twitter conversation that we had. (laughs) Uh, Isn't that fun? I know, a heap of fun, so I'm I'm, uh, hoping we have the same conversation here now. Uh, Shuba Ramani, uh, associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, internal medicine physician at the Brigham and Women's uh, in Boston, and perhaps very relevant to today's uh, conversation, senior faculty within the Harvard Macy Institute, and she has led the research and scholarship theme at the Educators Course over a number of years. Uh, she's also an honorary professor of medical education at the University of Manchester. How are you, Shuba? Great to see you again.
2: Lovely to see you, Victoria. And I am well. Thank you. All right. Well, I thought we might get into this pretty quickly
1: by way of really just thinking about some examples of work you've done and how you think that has helped, or otherwise, the uh, practitioners in health professions education. And Lara, I thought we might sort of start with you. Uh, Your CV is long and distinguished, but could you tell us a little bit about the kind of scholarship that you do? And how do you think people actually use any of that?
0: It's such a great question and I appreciate this conversation because I can't speak for anyone but myself but in my heart the work that I do is makes a difference it's going well if anybody ever picks it up. So for me that's really important. That said the kind of work that I do I think people pick it up for different reasons depending on what it is. So I've done a, a, my career started off doing a lot of research in into professional healthcare teams. So looking at the way collaborators work together. And then that morphed into how researchers work together in medical education and all those sorts of things. So at the end of the day, I'm really interested in how people work with larger groups and then how those larger groups have influence on people. So the kind of research that I've done has, has spanned the gambit of very abstract and theory developing all the way down to, so what should you do on Monday morning? I think though, the, the work that many people probably have picked up on is that somewhere along the career, I realized that qualitative research and research that's very theory oriented, um, research that has a lot of theory in it. Unfortunately, that's kind of a a double blind for a lot of our community members is first of all, you know, we're The field originated in quantitative post-positivist research. So I'm coming at this world from deep left field for a lot of people. And then when I add in layers of be it feminist theory or leotards, postmodernism or ideology, who knows, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, great. Now she's going to do that. So I feel that part of the work that I've been doing lately is trying very hard to make explicit and clear the methodological, the paradigmatic, and the theoretical roots that a lot of work in our field stands on. So, you know, is bias a bad thing? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So it feels like it's up to me to say what that means in different spaces. And it's not just up to me, it's up to all of us. But for my body of work, that's some of the things that I felt, you know, if I want people to understand what I'm doing, then I have a responsibility not only to do the research but also to provide the tools with which, that, with which others can understand my research.
1: Mm-hmm. So you're kind of educating them along the journey, uh, both to understand your research but also to understand some of the broader, uh, as you say, pillars on which these ways of thinking about the world are built. Um, I'm going to push you a little bit here. Can you like give Please? us an example of a re- research
0: study that you have did and, and then how you help people understand it? Sure. So um, recently, I um, had the great opportunity of working with some wonderful scholars, some of whom have ties back to the Harvard Macy program. So of course, uh, these included people like uh, Margaret Hay in Australia, Debbie Yarsma in the Netherlands, Jen Cleland, who is now in Singapore, Nancy Dudek in Canada. What we did is we collected narratives Of different women who have reached the, obtained the goal of full professor status in medical education to try to understand what that journey was like. And then as we went through, we decided we would also collect the same journey narratives from male participants, from males in the field who have achieved that status, just to try to understand why it was that we see in our literature that women are not progressing to the higher stand, the higher levels of our community at the same rate as men. Even if we take into consideration things like the, no, they have to make it through the pipeline. Well, We've done the before and after with about a 25-year gap in between, and it hasn't happened. So there's got to be something more. And so uh, we used feminist re- feminist uh, theory, and we did uh, narrative research. The findings were enlightening, uh, talking about how a structure that can seem really objective, like the structures of promotion are X, Y, and Z, right? It's the same for everybody. We say that's objective. But when you listen to the narratives of the participants, you find out that the principles underpinning those objective structures actually are not equitable. So uh, male participants, for instance, talked about how um, they needed to balance work and private life. Absolutely. But there was a very clear separation line right at the door where work starts. And the female participants talked about how their work life was intimately connected to their private life and vice versa. And they weren't necessarily in control of any kind of division, even if it was possible. So then fantastic research. That's great. But now I've, I call it fantastic. Of course I do. I think it's wonderful. It was exciting as work. You should, as you should. Right? If you don't believe yes. in your own work, why are you doing it? <laughs> <laughs> and like with these kinds of collaborators, we had a hoot. Like, of course it was yeah, good that. stuff. But then the question is now, you know, I've done all this work. And I you sit back and you say, Now, I did something using narrative inquiry, and that's not your typical medical education, health professions education type methodology. I better put a paper out there that kind of helps the community understand what that kind of work is, what the goals are, what that means. So, fortunately, there's a paper along those lines that's in process right now and under review at at a journal. And then on the other side, well, I also use feminist theory. And again, you know, thanks to people like Malika Sharma up in Toronto, there's a great body of research starting to come out. I I also have to mention out in the UK, uh, Gabrielle Finn and Megan Brown, they're doing some amazing work of feminist theories. But I need to support that. So fortunately, I'm an editor at Advances, and we have a a new column called Theory Matters. So of course, I'm going to ask these people you know, feminist theory is something we can use, have been using. Could you write a piece for the journal on these topics? So that all of these theories and all of these things that they have, that the community has tools with which to understand, not only the methods and the theory, so, but also to understand what that means for the research. Because I'm not the only ones using these methods or theories. But if we don't provide them tools, then... Yeah, and so there's a lot in what you
1: said there. So it sounds like you're very strategic. The work, obviously, is... Uh, stands on its own in terms of rigor but you're talking about then where you position that in terms of where you publish it also in what you publish in that maybe the way that you write this manuscript also includes Mm -hmm. some clarity around your methods that people can then understand them because Mm -hmm. your audience may not be as familiar with them Uh, but it sounds like then also in your uh, publication strategy you're talking about matching other pieces together so that people can go on that journey Uh, and I guess uh, trying to take it a little bit more than just saying, well, the
0: odds ratio of being a professor, if you're a man is 2.4. Right. Yeah. Right. right. And, and, you know, when it comes to research and practice at the end of the day, research was originally intended. Like when we talk about the structures of research, the work of science, it's about building knowledge and knowledge is great, but there's a difference between knowledge translation and knowledge implementation There's a difference between me standing up saying, I created this knowledge. Isn't that great? Yeah, well, that's not where it ends. Quite frankly, we have in medical education at health professions ed, we have more steps to do. Because we have to make sure that we communicate that work in a way that's accessible. And sometimes that means doing translation work, implementation work around the knowledge.
1: Mm. Yeah, so not just the findings, but then obviously because we've done this deep dive uh, into this and explored it in some depth, that gives us an idea about what the impact of this imbalance is, some idea about how to redress that, uh, whether redressing that will fix the problem. Uh, Is it a problem? I mean, these are all really uh, important questions. All right, well, that's a brilliant starting point. Thank you. Uh, Shuba, I don't know if your example might be similar, completely different. Tell us about some of your educational scholarship and uh, how you think people use it.
2: Thanks, Victoria. Um, Some of the concepts are going to be similar, um, some fundamental uh, premise of how you get engaged in scholarship. However, the journey is very different. I'm a clinician and I'm a physician. And for most of us, I think, Scholarship in health professions education seems inaccessible at times because we're so busy taking care of patients and teaching our trainees. And sometimes I fault educational scholars for making this, not making this more accessible, more simple. Big words and uh, strict criteria, rigid criteria, not inflexible criteria. I I know because many of my fellow clinicians, and I'm sure yours as well, uh, they want to run away from this concept. They say, no, I can never do this. I don't have the time. I don't have the skills.
1: And the last thing they want is to be told that it's just because you've got epistemological differences.
2: Yeah. Uh, It doesn't really
1: excite them to join the conversation.
2: True. And so uh, I started as a clinician teacher and then I—it was really serendipitous uh, falling into research. And uh, but but I will say um, here's something you might find interesting. The first person who inspired a research study on my part was an Australian professor. Um, so she was a professor of social and behavioral sciences. So naturally, you know, she is a qualitative expert. And my first exposure was through a qualitative uh, research. course that she organizes for the School of Public Health. And it really stuck in my mind as the way of research, because one essential question I always want to ask is why? And qualitative research is just perfect for why. So I have done, perhaps not as much as LARA, Scholarship of Discovery, which is the uh, traditional uh, research-related scholarship. And Much of my, all my research has really been qualitative. Uh, But then I've also uh, done enough scholarship of application because what is the point of research if it's not applied to real life or practice? And um, at the time, obviously, one doesn't know, but then later on, oh, People come to a, at the Amy conference, look at my badge and say, oh, you are that. We are uh, your papers are on our syllabus for something, something, something. And that's how I started getting to know that they're actually using it and they're using mm-hmm. it for education, uh, faculty development courses. But lately, I've also been interested in integration, meaning bring concepts from non-medicine world into medical education or health professions education it all comes down to making scholarship applicable to clinical faculty in the health professions. And that's something I'm rather passionate about. One other thing I do want to mention is I'm really glad that Lara and many colleagues like her are talking about gender equity in health professions education scholarship. How many uh, publications in all these standard medical journals are are from scholars In non-Western countries, Mm. okay, we have a way, way long way to go. And I feel, and that's something I want to um, engage in, Mm. inclusivity, and I will say decolonialization of education.
1: Yeah, and the word, uh, the term intersectionality comes to play here, talking about a variety of diversity and inclusion issues. I was just talking to Deborah Nestel on a podcast earlier this week about her new International Journal of Healthcare Simulation, and that's very front and centre for her and thinking about uh, mentoring and coaching peer review processes so that uh, those uh, goals can be achieved. Uh, All right, lovely diversion. Can I come back just for a minute to your work, Shuba? Your work on feedback, I think, is one of the things that people know and Perhaps that's the work that they're using in faculty development. You talked about it's gratifying when you see it's used. How do you help people use it? How do you get it out there? How do you connect it with the people who are actually either giving feedback or training people to give feedback? What's this connection piece that you engage in?
2: And so there are two ways. If you see the types of manuscripts, there are some that are very theory driven and some are much, much more practical. Take all those theories. This is what we found. But here are 12 tips, for example. Mm. So it sounds like, again,
1: you're being a bit strategic about what you're, pu- you're publishing where and for which audiences uh, some are going to be interested in that deep dive theory. Some will want the 12 tips. Uh, it might be a good chance to shift this to thinking about systems. And Lara, you might have some thoughts here. You talked a little bit about your work and how you try and connect mm-hmm. it to the practitioners. Uh, mm-hmm. What about taking that out? How, what advice do you give others
0: Yes. So I think there's a a number of things that come to mind. The first and foremost is that when we're engaging in research, we have to remember that we have a responsibility to defend and protect that body of work. We can't afford to publish anything that isn't the best and highest quality because at the end of the day, that body of knowledge is going to shape the curriculum we develop. It will shape the assessments we construct. It will shape the, the hoops that we ask learners to jump through time and time again. So for me, at when it comes to the research side of the house, first, second, and third is rigor. Then, in terms of getting it into the hands of. of of the people who are going to engage with it and use it every day, then now we're talking about different kinds of publications and different kinds of disseminations. So for instance, the kind of theory-based work that I might publish um, that relies heavily on theory uh, will probably end up in a journal like academic, no, like medical education or advances in health sciences education. If we're talking about then how to turn that work into useful materials, how to use that work. Um, So the the piece uh, dovetailing with uh, Shiva's work on mentorship, uh, I wrote a piece with uh, Cyra Christancho about how to be a good mentee. 12 tips. And, you know, that's a really practical piece that then ends up in medical teacher. Amy guides are very practical. Academic medicine can have some very practical pieces embedded in it. So sometimes it's about knowing your audience. What kind of members, what kind of community members are reading which journals and targeting your work that way? Another thing, though, is that we have to start really thinking about dissemination in different kinds of ways. Once upon a time, not so very long ago, you could publish your piece in a journal and congratulations, wave your hands, done. Well, you know, the world has shifted and quite frankly, for the better. So now it's not done at dissemination of publication. Now we're talking about at least doing some kind of workshops or um, some type of uh, translation work at a conference. So I did a lot of work, worked really hard with some uh, collaborators. Again, another connection back to Harvard Macy. So many of you know Boss Uta Hagen and uh, Elise Paradis and Meredith Young to really try to map out how do you use theory in in research. How do you do that? And so we had this great fight. It was a good one, right? Like a healthy dis- disagreement. And it was a really good negotiation. You know those ones where everybody walks away equally disappointed. It was exactly that, right? But we managed to create this piece about describing how to use theory in health professions, education, scholarship, and research. And that piece has, uh, we started off by doing uh, some workshops at different conferences at AME and AMC. Next thing you know, we're being asked to talk about it at different schools and give workshops individually. And uh, that piece is now part of many different um, master's and PhD programs in health professions education, because it took something that's expected of research and laid out very clearly what it is, what it means, how it works. It doesn't mean it's easy, but I can at least tell you the story in a way that makes sense Mm. in in clear language. And then of course, you know, while those kinds of workshops are great, you have to be invited. So another thing you can do to push the the use the 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 practical side of your workout is through podcasts and um the blogs that I know Harvard Macy's blog is Right up there, Um, Christina. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, Christina Zara. Man, she's amazing. She's my Twitter, my Twitter mentor. I love her. Um, But you know, there's lots of ways that we can harness social media to help us do that kind of work. And so, I think it's part of the challenge of making research very much in the hands of users is thinking about not just what it is that you want to translate, but all the different ways of disseminating that information.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll give a shout out to Keyline Podcasts here too, because uh, the story of that's quite interesting, isn't it? There were three doctors who were no slouches in the health professions education field. They, they certainly knew their stuff, had a good podcast, but I think you had a little bit of an itch that they weren't rigorous <laughs> enough in their methods uh, and theory discussion, and you joined them. And it's been I think really interesting to watch, but I think this speaks to exactly what you're talking about, getting material out there for the practitioners uh, in education, but also helping take everybody on a little bit of a journey of the rigour that you're talking about with the methods about how to do it well and then also how to know whether it's been
0: done well if you're being a consumer of that material. Right, absolutely. Because it's both sides of the fence, you know. Not every every there are manuscripts. there are a lot of good manuscripts that come to journals, as I'm sure all of us, you know, many of your listeners as well will know, um, who work on editorial boards. There are so many more papers that are really quite solid that we can't publish just because there aren't page numbers. Now we could deal with the whole thing about publication and whether or not page numbers is even a relevant issue anymore and why we do all the reviewing for free, but we don't need to go into that. That's a topic of conversation for another day. But (laughs) what we can say is that um, the papers that get out are reviewed and vetted, but it doesn't mean they're perfect. And so as a consumer, there's also responsibility to be able to say, look at this work and say, "Eh, am I buying what these people are selling? and to do that you need to have some skills and so maybe part of our dissemination efforts is to sit back in 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 podcasts like this one or like Key lime and say okay so they use this phrase what does that mean let's just break it down for a minute mm-hmm.
1: yeah that's a great way of um really sharpening that focus isn't it yeah uh, all right well that's been very helpful and i think um Lara, you've sort of covered a little bit about how to be a good consumer, how to be a good producer of educational scholarship. Uh, Shubha, could you pick up on this? And and I know that this is a lot of the work that you have done also in the Educators Program at Harvard Macy. Uh, What sort of thoughts do you take into trying to help both scholars who come wanting to be good consumers of educational scholarship, but also those that come wanting to become or advance their skills in becoming creators uh, of educational scholarship?
2: And I, I would like to stir up a friendly and respectful debate. Uh, rigor is good, but I think flexible rigor is even better. And I'll tell you why. Because rigor um, is based on criteria set in the Western world. And generally, uh, one I think most Western or Eurocentric researchers assume that it applies to the rest of the world. And there is there are studies here um, which basically say about eighty plus percent of the uh, scholars of the authors are from Europe and North America. I will include Australia uh, there, and not so much from Asia or Africa. Now, without even knowing their culture, I'm talking about societal culture and learning culture and organizational culture we make assumptions and I'll include myself, but then I'm also a hybrid. So this is where I can understand a little better, probably. You raise
0: an excellent point. So let's have this debate. I'd I'd be very happy to have this conversation with you. Because I do think, thinking about rigorous, flexible makes me a little nervous only because it, it implies that there's slip and slide in there. What I would like to suggest is that rigor comes in many different forms. And I think on that, we probably can agree. So just as there's rigor for qualitative work that comes within a post paradigm. There's rigor in a quantitative study that comes from a constructivist because they can work across, right? And post-colonial studies have a different marker of rigor. Um, there are all kinds of different approaches and orientations. I would love to understand more some of the paradigms and ways of thinking about reality, of what knowledge is. Then I can add another layer of rigor. But at the end of the day, I need to know regardless of what Kind of research you do that you're doing it well. Mm. So I would love to know what that vision of of knowledge is in other paradigms, and if Shuba, if you have any ways of of helping me to think about that, I'm wide open.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna push you both here because I think our listeners want an example. Tell us what what, what give us an example of something like this.
2: I don't know, Shuba, do you want to start? It's that assumption that the Western way of thinking is to give to the East, and they have nothing to give back. Most courses are organized by great institutions in the West, but then it's a one-way street.
1: Yeah, and I could perhaps give an example from a recent podcast, which I did with Sorsan Abdul-Rossig, who works in uh, Abu Dhabi, and she's done the same thing. And she calls it glocalization, thinking about uh, these very Western influences, in this case, mm-hmm. curricular objectives and ways of doing postgraduate uh, health professions education, but actually coming and saying we needed to redefine professionalism because the Western mm-hmm. de- definitions of professionalism weren't uh, adequate. So I think that's a, that's an example of what you're talking about, which is there may be some principles, but it's going to play out differently and we do need to uh, adapt and yeah, listening is always
0: a good idea. Laura, does that help? It does. You've you've put something in the back of my brain, Shuba. There must be ways of knowing in Eastern sciences and scholarships that could help me understand the values of what is good knowledge. How did they define good knowledge? What does their methodology look like? So um, I've never come across it, but it that may very well be because I haven't looked for it explicitly. I just expected it to be in the textbooks about philosophy of science. Uh, And so now uh, I would like to thank you for what I will surely be several weeks of lost time in the internets of life looking for various things.
1: (laughs) But it may be time (laughs) well spent.
0: (laughs) Right? It is totally time well spent because I would love to understand that. All
1: right. Well, I have a feeling that with you two this could go on for quite a long time, but I'm going to uh, sort of recap and, and come up to a bit of a last question about uh, advice for people much less advanced on the journey of scholarship than you two are so we've talked a lot about the importance of scholarship being connected to practice we've talked about the responsibility of those engaged in scholarship to think about uh, both new and old ways of helping connect that to practitioners both about the way we do our work where we put our work how we build on our work through dissemination and and other connecting pieces i think we've talked a bit about being wary of only one way of doing this and that the There's diverse ways of doing those. Uh, Can I ask you both, getting really practical here, advice for uh, health professions educators who are starting to engage in scholarship? uh, And I know this isn't a how-to podcast, but they're starting to engage in it. But do you have some advice about how they can continue to straddle what might feel like an unfamiliar place in scholarship with their more familiar place and practical place of of work in teaching, and in some cases in clinical practice, but not all. Now, that's a pretty broad question, but I'm going to see what advice you have.
2: First of all, have a passion for the topic, okay? Think of what you absolutely want to make a change in. So the topic must be really something close to your heart. Second, um, join a team. Join a team of you know with a whole uh, variety of skills, including research skills, not just topic skills. And so. so I think a collaborative research team, collaborative writing team is very important. We can't just expect novices to jump in and then produce a wonderful study. I think that's not. And then the third thing I say is, you can stop. Scholarship is not just research. Scholarship does not have to start and end with a research study and publication. Scholarship is a matter of making your work public, um, available for critique, and other people can be built on. And I say stop wherever you want to. You don't have to. That I don't think it's a pyramid of you know just as a quantitative researchers talk about the pyramid of rigor in quantitative research design and then RCTs being at the top i don't think that's the case as long as your work is made public built upon and of use and application to other people so that's that's uh, a brief nutshell, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, that's very useful. And I think I'm thinking about the International Clinician Educators Network blog. And I think that's a little example where sometimes people can do that modest work that is very connected across uh, both scholarship and practice. All right, Lara, would you think about this differently, the same? What advice
0: would you give? I think that I would give uh, slightly different advice, but. Uh, different, but aligned. I think what is, so when, when clinicians come and ask me to work with them, one of the first conversations I have with them is, you know, why do you want to do this? Because sometimes it's for promotion purposes. And if it's for promotion purposes, fine, no problem. Let's find out what those promotion criteria are to make sure we get the work gets meets those checkboxes. Because if it's, If the if the work is being done for that kind of practical purpose, then I want to make sure we achieve the benchmarks that are in front of them to achieve that purpose. Uh, And sometimes it's not glamorous. Sometimes it's like I need to have two papers, if I'm two more papers, if I'm going to get over this finish line. And then the question is, you know, should we do something really deep and thoughtful and analytical, and or do you need two papers? Because you know that's fine too. There's there's reasons, Mm. right? There's all kinds of reasons for doing different kinds of things. So one of the first things that I really ask that I am very careful about is asking them, you know, why do you want to do this? Where do you want to be in five years? They are doing clinical education likely right away anyway, right? Part of their work is to engage in clinical education. Can we turn that into a two birds, one stone situation? Can we get, can we harness the clinical education or the lecturing, UME, GME, CME, I don't care what level it's at, but are you doing some of that work anyway that we can use as a test bed as a location for engaging in asking important questions about things you care about because then the work that they do is harnessed for the additional purpose of scholarship or research. And so for me that's that's another one of those things that helps to streamline process to make sure that that we not only do we start something but we, that we finish it. And that's the last point that I'll point to is that one of the most frustrating things um that I think can happen to our clinician educators is that they start but it doesn't get anywhere it doesn't get to the place where they man- they want it to get to and so i think one of the things that's really important is to know you know the to begin with the end in mind is a bit of a cliche um my one of my favorite um examples of that is actually from Stan Hamstra who uh, once told me when he was we were sitting down to design a study and he's like okay but what's the table going to look like in the results section i'm like you have got to be kidding we're sitting here talking about the idea and you're already in the results section of your paper we don't have data yet but it is a way of understanding what is it that you want to try to create what is the f- the push you're trying to to what's the thing though what's the the boulder you're trying to move up the hill what is it that you're trying to achieve and so for me that's um if you can start with a sense of what that is, then making sure that we get to the finish line is something, you know, now you're now we're building timelines of small goals. We can do that. right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing there that's, I married a rocket scientist. And let me tell you this, even rocket science isn't rocket science, right? And the, nothing we do is that mysterious or hard. It's often about breaking it down into tangible steps and figuring out how we're going to make it happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I like that idea of writing the paper before you even do the work. Um, right? It helps to Dang. really cement your own thinking even before you get there. Well, this has been so interesting, and uh, I can only imagine how fortunate your mentees are in having some of these conversations so that their work can be both useful for them as well as useful for the readers of their final product. Uh, and I think some interesting diversions here, but also some practical thoughts, so a little bit of deep reflection for some of us as well as some practical ideas. So I want to thank you both for your time today uh, and we're looking forward to the educators course shortly uh, with Harvard Macy Institute and I'm sure we'll be picking up on some of these themes about the connection between scholarship and practice in health professions education but uh, thank you Shuba Thank you Lara.
0: Thank you so much for having thank you, me Victoria. Victoria.